0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we had the pleasure of being joined by David Collins, founder of Howway Investments and fund manager of the Howway Equity Fund. In this episode, David talks about his investing style, how he generates ideas, and provides a superb breakdown of two companies he's bullish on for the long run. This is a great episode, and I think you will really enjoy it. Before we begin, we have recently launched the Capital Employed Letter. We will be doing two write ups per month about stocks that have piqued our interest. These will mostly be quality, growing small caps from around the world. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, visit capitalemployed.substack.com and add your email to the list. That's capitalemployed.substack.com. Okay, let's jump into this week's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with David. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, John. It's uh, good to be on. First time I've ever, d- ever done something like this.
0: Yeah, I've been looking forward to having you on as I've been reading your letters. Can you provide a brief overview of Huawei Investment and also what is the investing style for the fund?
1: Yes. So, so we actually started Huawei Investments. It's a company I founded a couple of years ago. And you're right that we launched our fund, which is the Howe Equity Fund. So we launched that in January at the beginning of 2021. And that's a fund that's got currently about £8 million of assets in it, and the money's invested into 24 companies. And in terms of investing style, you know, I just think of myself as as a long-term investor. I don't sort of decouple growth and value and think you need to be one or the other. You know, I think they are two parts of the same puzzle. You know What I'm really looking for when I invest is companies that can do the heavy lifting for me. By that, I mean businesses that can grow, reinvest their profits at high rates of return. So I would say that's at least 20% IRRs. And then I want them to be able to do that for a long period of time. If you boil it down, I just want to own really good businesses for the long term. You know, one thing that I'd say w- you know, we're definitely not doing at how investments is we're not playing what I call the share price prediction game. By that, I mean you know, trying to predict what a company's share price is going to do over the next 12 months. You know, I find probably most of the so-called investment narrative that you see around the shares of public companies is often based on what I call share price prediction. It's very short-termist, right? So anything that you see from sell-side analysts with their buy-sell-hold recommendations and their 12-month price targets, you know, that's all in my view, that's just share price prediction, and you know I've done that job. I was a an analyst at two of the Wall Street banks for for five years, and in my view, that's just a bit of a game. It's not really investing. I mean, if you, if you take a step back and you were to just ask the general public, you know, what do you think successful investing's about? They'd probably say it's about backing really good companies that can grow and be successful in the future, and make money while doing so. And to us, that's a pretty good understanding. You know, you've got to look beyond the next twelve months. That's typically where the best opportunities can be found in my view. And so that's, that, that's our approach, really.
0: What type of businesses do you like to invest in? Are there any um, business characteristics or business model that you look for?
1: So there's probably, I mean, there's a lot of things that we look for, probably two that I would sort of emphasize. So the first is, you know, we want businesses that have got really loyal customers. You know, when we analyze a company, like everybody, we'll look at all the different stakeholders, but we really major on the customers and the value proposition to, to those customers. Because we find you know, companies that make products that their customers love and preferably can't do without, over time, they can generate tremendous shareholder returns because those customers just keep coming back, whatever's going on in the economy, whatever the weather. Um, so that's the first starting point is businesses that make great product that customers love. The second thing that we look for is a bit more intangible, but it's you know really important, and that's business culture. You know, we think that you know culture is actually the biggest driver of shareholder value in any industry. And at a a high level, I think in business there's really two competing forces. So you've got enterprise or entrepreneurship, that's the good force, and then you've got bureaucracy, which I think of as the bad force. And those two forces often bang heads in any business. And I'd say, you know, unfortunately, over time, it tends to be that bureaucracy tends to win out. You know, you think of some of the amazing businesses in history that were pioneers in their day, businesses like IBM. You look at IBM today and it looks like a complete dinosaur. Um, it's a bit like human life, right? We all live, or you know, we're born, we live, and we ultimately die. The same thing happens to companies. And I think bureaucracy is, is one of the things which ultimately leads to the, to the demise of many companies. And, and as we think about investing from our side, we just we don't want to be invested in bureaucratic companies. We spend a lot of time looking for those rare gems, you know, those truly enterprising businesses. And so, you know, that's probably the second key thing that we look for. And we start from there. We try to identify those two characteristics. They are they are not common. We would say we build from there. So those are the sort of the, the two first things that we look for. I would say
0: how do you generate your investment ideas?
1: I find, you know, good ideas can come from all kinds of places. You know, the the clues are definitely out there. You've just got to try and, I think, walk through life with your eyes open, right? So whenever I see a a product or a service that I'm not familiar with, straight away, I'm on the internet trying to work out who's the company behind the product and who are the people behind the company. And it doesn't matter if the if the company's a private company that you can't invest in, I still do a bit of digging around on companies' house and so on to try and learn more about them because that information can be useful in the future. I mean, one good example of a business that I noticed just from sort of having my eyes open, if you like, is a company called Clipper Logistics, which probably you know, a lot of your listeners have probably heard of. I mean, it's a business I first noticed just from driving up and down the motorways in the UK, right? Because we've all seen Again, over the last decade, we've all seen those huge Amazon warehouses popping up, you know, next to the M1 and the A1 and so on, all over the country. And what I found was, found was, that as you drive past those Amazon warehouses, you'll often see a Clipper Logistics warehouse. Um, it'll typically be smaller, um, but they're often in similar locations to, to those Amazon sites and. You know, that piqued my interest, and so from there I went away and started looking into this this company, Clipper Logistics, which I didn't know anything about previously. And you quickly find they you know they're a great sort of picks and shovels play on the rise of online commerce. I mean, for them it's specifically they're in the fashion industry at the moment, um, but I think they will expand into other verticals in the future. And you know I found you know they've been a, a key partner for brands that have been successful um, in online commerce, so brands like Boohoo and ASOS. You know, they've recently partnered with a company called Farfetch, who are becoming quite, quite a, a powerful force in online luxury. They're also working with you know, some of the brands that were a bit sleepy and slow out of the gates when it comes to online commerce. So they're working with John, John Lewis, Marks & Spencers. They work with other smaller brands, businesses like Jewels and Susanda, some of the, the more up-and-coming brands. The more, more work I did on Clipper, the more I liked it, um, frankly. They, they've become successful because they are really good at reverse logistics, right? So as, you, as we buy clothes online, you, know, you take them up to your bedroom and try them on and it, inevitably some of them don't fit. So you've got to send those back. And from the brand's perspective, you know, they want to work with a partner who can quickly turn those returns around and get them back up and available for sale on their websites. And Clipper has become one of the go-to partners for that. And so that, I mean, that, that's just a great example of a company that had I not been sort of looking left and right, if you like, as I'm driving up and down the motorways and just sort of curious to see what's going on, I, I may have missed. Um, and I find those are the best ones. I'd much rather discover companies in that way than the more traditional way of you know, getting a recommendation from you know, another professional investor or whatever it may be. I'm perfectly happy to 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 receive those as well. But there's something very rewarding when you can actually discover the companies yourself.
0: I really like that approach. You mentioned Clipper Logistics there. Are there another two stocks in your portfolio that you feel have good long-term potential? What was your thesis behind investing in them?
1: I guess we can start with a company called Games Workshop. It's a company that I think people, investors appreciate. This is a quality business, but perhaps don't know so much about it. and so. Let me, let me take a stab at talking you through it. So it's a business that was started in the 1970s in Nottingham um, by three science fiction enthusiasts. And one of them is a guy called Ian Livingston. Um, and you, I don't know if when you were a kid, John, you ever read it, any of his books. So he used to write those sort of fighting fantasy role-playing books. I mean, I certainly used to play them. You know, one of them was called Death Trap Dungeon. It was those books where, you know, you, the reader, decide what to do next. So it would be like, you know, if you want to fight the dragon, turn to page 73. Or if you want to run into the cave, turn to page 54. A bit of an idea of the background of the people who started the company. And, and those books are not part of Games Workshop today, but it gives you a feel for the, the beginnings of the business. I mean, if you, if you look at it today, so Games Workshop today is the dominant player in the world of Tabletop wargaming through their Warhammer franchises. And the customers who play this game refer to it as, in quotes, the hobby, right? So if you speak to science fiction nerds or fantasy nerds, really anywhere in the Western world, and you speak to them about the hobby, there's a good chance that they'll know you're referring to Warhammer. And there's a few sort of key different parts to the hobby, and this all ties back to what I was saying earlier on about. Loving businesses that are loved by their customers, people who play the hobby absolutely love it. And so, if you if you think about the different parts of it, so that the first part I would say is building and painting these miniatures, which you know form your army that you're going to use to play the game. And so, these are those highly intricate sort of plastic or resin miniatures. You know, there's different characters. There might be Space Marines or orcs. And actually, the painting up of the characters is a big part of the hobby. A lot of people just play the hobby just to do the painting. Then, I guess like, like a lot of hobbies, there's then the collecting side, right? So some people like to build up, paint the miniatures and collect all the different armies. And there are tons of different armies and different characters that you can collect. Then the next bit I would say is playing the actual tabletop war game. So a good way to get a feel for you know, how this actually works is just to go down to your local Warhammer store, right? There's Warhammer stores all over the UK. There's probably one within a 15 to 20 minute drive of wherever you live. And if you go into those stores, you'll typically find at the back of the store, there'll be a group of of people playing that game. It will typically be men. And it's like a turn-based strategy game that involves rolling dice and you move your army across the table and you attack your opponents and they attack you and, and that sort of thing. One thing to think about from the investor's perspective is that the rules of this game are constantly evolving and constantly being updated to reflect you know, new characters that are being brought into the different universes within which you play or you know, Games Workshop will change the strengths and weaknesses of, of different armies. So that means if you're a player, you've got to constantly evolve and upgrade your army. And so that, that's a recurring feature that obviously drives recurring revenue for Games Workshop. And then I'd say the, the last part of the hobby is... You know, people who enjoy the IP, particularly people who who like to read about these universes. So Games Workshop's got a publishing arm, which is called the Black Library. And last year, I mean, last year alone, the Black Library published 150 novels on the different universes within which the game is played. Right. And they've got some of the best science fiction writers in the world who are writing for Games Workshop. So there's a guy called Dan Abnett, he's a very famous science fiction writer, he does an awful lot of work for the likes of Marvel, um, and he also writes a lot of books for for Games Workshop. And if you think about the settings, right, so there's different settings within which you play these games. The first one is called Warhammer 40,000, and that's their main franchise, if you like. And you can think of that as being a bit like Star Wars, right? So that's their science fiction setting. Then you've got their Dungeons & Dragons fantasy setting, which is called Warhammer Age of Sigmar. So those are the two main settings within which the game is played. But they've also actually got exclusive rights to produce the tabletop war game for Lord of the Rings, as an example. Um, And that's currently a relatively small part of their business, but I think there's a big Lord of the Rings TV series that's going to be released next year on Amazon. I think it's like a prequel to The Hobbit and that sort of thing. Um, So inevitably, Games Workshop will pick up a nice little boost in their revenues from that. But the main franchises, as I say, are 40k and Age of Sigmar. And people who play the hobby, they often jokingly refer to it as plastic crack, right? They say it is as addictive as that. And if you want to understand the sort of intensity of the player's obsession with Warhammer and the hobby, one way you can do this is just go onto YouTube, and type in Warhammer 40,000, or Warhammer 40k, and you'll see loads of videos created by fans, and many of those videos will have been individually viewed several millions of times each. Um, you can, I mean, we're doing a podcast today, John. You can also look on you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts, and you'll find, again, hundreds of podcasts created by fans of the hobby, where all they do is they get together on a weekly basis and talk for several hours about the hobby. So you know this this i say this company is a it's like a cult or a religion more than a, than a company and because the customers love the product so much this gives games workshop unbelievable pricing power i mean in my view there are very few businesses in the world that have pricing power anything like games workshop and the financial result is that of that is that they generate very high returns on capital employed you know almost triple digit returns on capital employed the business throws off cash. I mean, it produces so much cash that they actually pay out five dividends a year because they're producing so much cash. And and cash is not the constraint on their growth. They do reinvest. They've recently expanded their warehousing capacity, their manufacturing capacity. But the business just throws off so much cash that I think they're the only UK company that pays out as much as five dividends a year. So then if if you think about the investment case... It, you know, you've got first you've got the tabletop war game, right, which I think will continue to go from strength to strength. I mean, whenever they release new products, it sells out instantly. I mean, if you're a player of the game and you want the new releases, you've, you, you've really got to pre-order or you're not, you're not going to get them. They will have sold out within the first few days of launch. And you can see this also in that there's a huge secondary market, right? So if you go on platforms like eBay, and you search for Warhammer miniatures, you can, you'll see there's a huge secondary market out there as well because the demand for these characters is so high. If you look at the business geographically, so the two main regions at the moment are the UK and the US. Um, they generate roughly the same size in terms, of, in terms of revenue. The US market's growing a lot. I mean, the entire business is growing a lot, but the US market should probably be you know, at least three to four times bigger than the UK. So there's a lot of growth for them to go for there. And then also Asia, right? So Asia is currently very small for Games Workshop, but there's an awful ton of science fiction nerds in Asia. Um, Star Wars and so on is very popular over there. And there's, there's good opportunities emerging for them. So you know, I think a lot of your listeners will be familiar with what's happened recently in China where there's been a limit imposed on the amount of time that children can spend playing computer games. So I think they've been restricted to three hours a week, and I think it's only at the weekend. And there's evidence emerging that Chinese children are are now exploring new hobbies that they are allowed to play, and one of those hobbies is Warhammer. So you're seeing growth in Warhammer and other hobbies like chess and the game Go and so on. Um, So there's a real opportunity there. Um, for the Warhammer franchises to really penetrate China and some of the other big, big parts of Asia. So that’s the sort of the tabletop war game. There’s a lot of growth to go for just from that. But then you've also got the company now making a big move to try and realize the potential of their IP. You know again, you think of how big like Star Wars is, how big Marvel has become, you know Disney’s done a fantastic job in monetizing the potential of the Marvel franchise. You've then seen other franchises like Game of Thrones you know, be really successful in the streaming world. I think The Witcher is another one that's like a top 10 streamed show on, on Netflix. Well, if you look at the Warhammer IP, I'd say it's easily as good as any of those. I mean, I'd actually say that Warhammer 40,000 is a superior science fiction IP than Star Wars. People will probably think I'm mad for saying that. But the 40K world is actually far deeper and far richer than Star Wars. It's also not cheesy like Star Wars, which is, I guess is my view. And it's it's also much darker. So I just think it has the potential to attract a real cult following of people who want to watch the content and the IP on the big screen, for example, but they aren't interested in playing the tabletop war game. And they've actually got a huge pipeline of content now coming down the track. So none of this is really within their reported revenues yet. But I'll, you know, I'll give you a few examples. So they're working on a, a, a TV series to be streamed on one of the big platforms. It's, it's a series that's going to be called Eisenhorn. So Eisenhorn is one of the characters within the world of 40K. There was a book written on this character by Dan Abnett. Well, there's a series of books, actually. And the Eisenhorn series is being directed by Frank Spotnitz. And he's the guy who was, you know, he's a famous director. He directed The X-Files, among among many other things. So they're working with some really impressive people to try and bring their IP to life. And I'd expect it to be shown on Netflix probably, you know, in 2023, that sort of thing. They're also doing a lot in computer games. They've had some modest success in computer games in the past, but they've never really completely fulfilled their... fulfilled their potential, I think. So it's in the public domain. They're working with developers like Frontier, right? the UK-quoted um, computer game developer. They're working on an Age of Sigmar game with them. But there's also rumors of other huge games under development, which they haven't yet commented on publicly. But there's a lot of evidence that those are underway as well. So You know, huge potential. Even if they just realise a fraction of their IP, you know, this is a currently a three billion pound company. Even just a modest amount of success, there, I think, could generate tremendous shareholder value. The last point I would raise about Games Workshop, which I like, you know, not everybody else will like, but I I certainly like it. And and it's this point around they're led by a management team who are unconventional, right? They don't follow the merry-go-round that most public companies follow right? They don't engage with city analysts. They don't engage with the financial press. They don't do institutional investor roadshows. They don't provide guidance or anything like that. They just don't play what I call the stock market game, right? They're entirely focused on their business and their customers. And to me, it reminds me of that book by William Thorndyke about those, you know, the outsiders, that, you know, the, the book about those incredible CEOs who generated tremendous shareholder returns. And the one thing that they all had in common was they were not interested at all in Wall Street. Games Workshop are very much like that. You know, they've, in terms of their investor interactions, they've tried to adopt something similar to the Berkshire Hathaway approach. So they have a good annual general meeting every year that's open to all investors, not just city institutions. They provide a really good annual report where the CEO gives a comprehensive update and then that's it right they don't play the quarterly earnings game with analyst conference calls and every analyst having to ask their obligatory two questions because they just think that's a waste of time so like i say not everybody will like that but to me that's you know that's evidence of really strong culture and people who clearly know you know what they're focused on and their focus is on their business and in particular their customers i guess the last thing on games workshop is people might think okay what's the valuation of the company etc first thing I'd say is I don't think you know, the analysts have that much, you know, they cover the company. I don't know how well they really do it because like I said earlier on, they aren't being given guidance on a plate by the Games Workshop management team. So if you believe those consensus estimates, which I don't, but if you do, then it looks like the company trades on, call it 25 times this year's earnings. You know, they've obviously got net cash on the balance sheet because they produce so much cash. But I think you know, the analysts have consistently underestimated the earnings power of the business. Uh, they consistently underestimate the, you know, the pricing power and so what. My expectations is the company will, will do much better than, than what a typical sell-side analyst would project. But even if the analysts are correct, 25 times earnings with cash on the balance sheet, it's a pretty good valuation given the you know, incredible quality of the, the Games Workshop franchise. So that's, I mean, that's Games Workshop. I don't know if you've got any questions on that one, John.
0: No, that's a fantastic breakdown. It's, it's a company that I've always heard of from afar, but I've never really um, looked deep into it. So yeah, thanks so much for um, breaking down into such detail there. How about your second stock that you'd like to talk about?
1: Yeah, so the second company is a company called Supreme. And the ticker for that one is SUP. And so Supreme's a business that's ran by, you know, a really impressive entrepreneur, a guy called Sandy Chadder. So Sandy owns 57% of the business. And for me, it just shows what a fast-moving business with a really enterprising culture can do, particularly when it's often competing against these slower-moving bureaucratic companies. And I'd say the, the one thing that impresses me the most about Supreme is the category creation, right, which is just pure entrepreneurialism. I'll come back and describe that again, sort of step back and think about the beginnings of the company. So it was a, it's a business that was actually started by Sandy's dad in the 1970s, and it was from you know, very primitive beginnings. They were selling clocks and watches out the back of a van. Um, and Sandy actually left school in the 1980s without any qualifications, and he went to work for his dad. I think one important thing to note is it's not as if you know, Sandy's the lucky son who got to inherit a great business. I mean, not at all. I mean, if you look at Supreme today, it's essentially been entirely built by Sandy. And that business today is, so they currently operate across four categories. Those categories are, first of all, batteries, then lighting or LED light bulbs more specifically. The third category is vaping. And the fourth category is sports nutrition, right? So, So they probably seem like four very random categories. But the thing that ties it all together is, is actually the customers, right? So Supreme's got something like 3,000 customers in the UK, but they're, they're also a very big supplier to the big discounters, right? So think of chains like B&M, Home Bargains, TJ Hughes, Poundland, and all the other various pound, you know, pound stores across the UK. And they also supply all the big supermarket chains as well. I think Supreme is just loved by its customers because they make an awful lot of money for them. I mean, to give you an example, you know, if you were to walk into a B and M store, John, you know, what do you think is probably the most profitable part of that store? So you might think, you know, it's often the the part of the store when you walk in, right? They they often put a lot of the best products right up front. So when you walk in, you might be seeing Mars bars or cans of Coke or Heinz baked beans or PG tips, tea bags, those sorts of things. And I'm sure those, those sections make a, a lot of money for them. But my understanding is that the, the most profitable part of the store is actually where they sell 88 Vape. And 88 Vape is the vaping brand that the Supreme team have built from scratch to now being the number one player in the UK vaping market. They've got about 30% market share. And so I'll come back and actually talk about 88 Vape. Uh, but that's just one example of the you know incredible category creation that that I think Supreme is capable of so again if we if we step back a bit so supreme has been built on two really stable cash producing businesses being batteries and lighting right so they started out in batteries so supreme's actually a licensee of all the major battery providers in the UK so duracell panasonic energizer and they've held those licenses for decades and today Supreme sells something like 200 million batteries a year, right? So if you walk into a store and pick up Duracell batteries, it's likely they've been supplied by Supreme. So that was the first part of the business. They then expanded into lighting, specifically light bulbs, and they're a big manufacturer now of LED light bulbs. And they do that under the brand names of EverReady and Energizer. So those are, again, two of the battery brands that they worked with successfully on on the battery side of the business, and they've used those brands to expand into lighting. So those two businesses, battery and lighting, have sort of provided the stable platform from a cash flow perspective, but then also they've provided the customer relationships, which they're now expanding into. And the first area of expansion was vaping. Right. So this is, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier on about about walking through life with your eyes open, right? So one of the things that we've all seen over the last decade is this huge transition to vaping, right? So those big plumes of smoke um, that smell like raspberry and strawberry and whatever else. Um, So you've had this huge transition to vaping in the UK over the last decade. So today there's about three and a half million vapors in the UK, and that compares actually to seven million smokers. So there's still a lot of smokers who will, I believe, ultimately make that transition. But out of the three and a half million vapers in the UK today, one million of them vape with 88 Vape. And that's a brand that Supreme created from scratch. And the thing that impresses me a lot about 88 Vape is that they've totally outdone big tobacco, right? So the big tobacco companies have known for a while that the writing's on the wall for cigarettes. And they've been trying to pivot to vaping and other sort of next generation, less harmful nicotine products. And they've been throwing hundreds of millions, billions of pounds collectively at trying to develop these new products. But Supreme has completely outdone them all by simply providing the best value vape in the market, right? So if you look at the, think about the customer value proposition, if you were to buy a bottle of E-Liquid, which is the stuff that goes into your vape that you're gonna puff on. So a 10 millilitre bottle of 88 vape e-liquid costs just one pound. Right? The equivalent product from the big tobacco companies that have created their own vaping brands, their equivalent product is more like four pounds. Um, now, not only is the 88 vape product cheaper, but if you look at the online feedback, it also seems to taste better as well. And and think about the smoker, right? So The the guy who's smoking 20 cigarettes a day, um, you know, a packet of 20 cigarettes costs, I think it's about £10. So if you're smoking 20 cigarettes a day, you're spending something like £60, £70 a week. If that person switches to vaping, that 10ml bottle of e-liquid will last a week, right? So you're talking about £70 of your cost of smoking cigarettes, or one pound if you vape with 88 vape. So not only is there a huge self, um, health incentive to switch to vaping, but there's also a huge financial incentive as well. And we know that the reality is that most, you know, smoking is most prevalent in the poorest parts of the country. If somebody can save, you're talking about 3,000 pounds a year by switching to 88 vape, that's a huge saving to those people. So there's a really strong um, customer value proposition. You know, some of your listeners might be thinking, well, <laughs> I'm not sure about this, it's, you know, nicotine, it's not very ethical, it's not very ESG. And what I'd say to that is it's not actually the nicotine in cigarettes that kill people, right? It's the other harmful substances that are released when the tobacco leaf is burned. And you, d- you don't need to believe me, right? You can just look at what Public Health England is saying. They are very big supporters of vaping. They say that vaping is 95% safer than smoking cigarettes. And we're actually now at the point where the NHS, under the advice of Public Health England, is going to start prescribing e-cigarettes and vaping to smokers, because they've realized that's the best way to help people quit. Um, so there's potentially a big NHS contract up for grabs. It's worth noting that 88 Vape already has two large government contracts, right? They're the, big sup- the, the, the supplier of vaping to Her Majesty's prisons, both in England and Wales, and then separately in Scotland. So they should be well-placed to win that NHS contract. They're offering the, the best value product, but also for that contract, I think it's important to recognize they aren't Big Tobacco, right? Most of their competitors are products that have been developed by Big, to bra- big Tobacco and the NHS won't want to work with those companies. So I think Supreme should be well positioned to pick up that contract. But even if they don't, there's just that natural transition of people that's happening over time from smoking to vaping. So I think there's at least another million customers that Supreme can, can pick up on that side of the business. And then you know, go back to customer loyalty. You know, one thing as I was researching this company that really impressed me was just look at the Trustpilot reviews. Right, so if you go on Trustpilot, 88 vapors had, I think they got about 35,000 customer reviews. 94% of those reviews are excellent. Um, 98% are excellent or great. And you can look across all different companies and categories on Trustpilot, and it's very rare to see that level of customer affection for any company. You know, If you look at the, um, the competitive vaping brands of the big tobacco houses, they typically have just a few hundred reviews, and most of them are dreadful. So 88 Vape is this incredible business. We know from nicotine businesses that they foster tremendous loyalty, obviously because the product is addictive, but also because because of the flavor concepts, right? So when, when people become accustomed to a flavor that they like, they tend to stick with it. And my view is that 88 Vape alone is worth more than the market cap of Supreme today, right? So Supreme's got a market cap of about 200 million. And and it's particularly worth more to the big tobacco companies who know that they've got to pivot away from cigarettes. You know, I was actually reading, so this morning, Imperial Brands, um, which used to be Imperial Tobacco, they put their full-year results out. And I was amused, you know, they were celebrating in their full-year results that in the last 12 months, they only lost 150 million pounds in their next generation products because the previous year they lost over 300 million pounds. And I just think sooner or later, they're going to realize look, we're not enterprising businesses. We're not good at creating new brands. You know, We need to go out and buy the ones that are successful. And 88 Vape is one of the most successful vaping brands in the world with tremendous growth potential. And I'm not invested because I'm expecting Big Tobacco to buy it. But I just think that's one lens where you can really think about the potential value of that, of that brand and that business. So that's, you know, that's just the vaping category, right? That's one category created from nothing by this brilliant entrepreneur, and it's now the number one player in the UK. Now, Supreme are moving into other categories, right? So they've they've got this sports nutrition and wellness section now within their accounts, and that's specifically vitamins and protein powders. And they do, so Supreme is going to do most of the manufacturing of those products. They're going to create new brands and they're going to sell those brands into the big discounters. And then they're also going to create new brands to just sell sort of online D2C. That's the sort of Shopify-empowered part of their business. So if you look at, if you just take vitamins as an example, so Supreme's created a brand called Sea Lions. And if you go on their website, you'll see that you can buy a year's supply of multivitamins for five pounds. I mean, that is way better value than anything currently on the supermarket shelves. And, and remember, it's you know, vitamins, it's essentially exactly the same product, but with different packaging. And there's early evidence out there that these products are starting to take off in a big way. And if you speak to Sandy about this, he'll tell you, you know, he's going to expand beyond vitamins and protein. You know, he wants to create effectively a mini Holland and Barrett. So he's going to create a wide range of SKUs, and he's going to just compete with the existing players on price and provide a much better um, customer value proposition. So I think that gives you that gives Supreme, you know, a long runway for growth in two really exciting categories, backed by those two very stable businesses of, um, you know, batteries and lighting. And frankly, I wouldn't put it past Sandy to find new verticals as well. He's one of those entrepreneurs where he's always on the lookout for the next thing. So, so that's sort of Supreme. And today, I think it's largely an undiscovered business, right? So if you if you look at how it's valued and so on by the market today. This is a company with another clean balance sheet, so they got a tiny amount of net debt on there and that net debt will soon turn to net cash. And if you believe the analyst forecasts, which I obviously don't again, but if you did, you'd see that it's trading on about 14 times this year's earnings. But again, I think the earnings power is much stronger than the consensus currently forecasts. I mean, in my view, it trades on less than 10 times next year's earnings. So you're getting this incredible business with customers that love the products, with a highly enterprising um, CEO founder who's brilliant at creating new categories, and you're getting all of that uh, for like a 10% free cash flow yield or you know, operating cash flow yield, if you like. To me, that's you know, a really compelling investment and so one that you can think about owning for a long time.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they would to move into um, the CBD oils and that side of things that seems to be growing very quickly as well
1: it's interesting you say that i think he's got i think he's got one of the website like he's got a really good domain name that he's already bought with a view to you know that could be one of the categories that we go into in the future because you're right there's a there's a lot of growth coming through there you see that you know in a big way in the us and it's coming also to the uk so i think he's already thinking about that sort of thing again which is really
0: encouraging i think that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you, David, for sharing those two companies. I've added both to the watch list. <laughs> okay, so we're um, coming up to time now. Where can people go to find out more information about you and your fund? Yeah, so
1: probably the best place is just to go to our website. So the website is www.howey.co.uk, and that's Howey is spelled H O W A Y. Or again, if you just stick it into Google, Howey Investments, hopefully the website will pop up. But yeah, howair.co.uk is the the best place to go.
0: I definitely uh, recommend listeners sign up to your uh, monthly fact sheets. Uh, Very well written, (laughs) a great read. Thank you. Okay, David, thanks so much. It's been great to have you on. Hopefully we can get you back in the future as well.
1: Thanks for the invite, John. I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. it.